listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on March 20th, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis Semat. In this episode, Professor Jacob Mundy, Assistant Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies at Colgate University, interviews Professor Mitek Budzunski, Professor of Politics and International Relations at Ponoma College, about his book entitled U.S. Democracy Promotion in the Arab World, Beyond Interests versus Ideals. So what was the inspiration for this book? Thanks, first of all, for this opportunity and great to see you, Jacob, here in Tunis. So the inspiration, I would say, was twofold. Number one, my long-standing interest in democratization and especially external factors in democratization. So for instance, the process of European Union enlargement and how that helped or, or maybe didn't help in democratizing the states of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. And I'd say the second inspiration, then maybe a bigger one, was my experience uh, serving as a U.S. diplomat in both Egypt and Libya immediately after the Arab Spring. And that was, of course, a really exciting time. So interesting about that time, of course, was not only being in these countries as this period of phenomenal upheaval and change was happening, but also to see it from inside the U.S. government and see how the U.S. government perceived the changes that were happening and reacted to them. So I'll just give you one little anecdote. Just about three months before the Egyptian revolution broke out, I was sitting at the Foreign Service Institute, which is the training academy for U.S. diplomats mm-hmm. near Washington, D.C. And we had weekly lectures there to prepare us for our postings. I was going off to Egypt. And one day we had a lecture by a very senior U.S. State Department official. He was kind of reviewing U.S. policy in the region. And when he arrived at the subject of Egypt, I'll never forget what he said. He said, God help us if anything were to happen to Mubarak. For me, that was a very telling, poignant phrase now in retrospect, because it showed the depth of U.S. dependence on this aging, corrupt, largely illegitimate autocrat. But then, of course, a few months later, Obama, against the advice of some of his closest advisors and against pressure, or in, in spite of pressure from close U.S. allies like Saudi Arabia and Israel, decided to drop U.S. support from Mubarak. And of course, some people say, well, it was late, and you know, he was just kind of going with where things were going inevitably anyway. Nevertheless, I think it was a bold policy move. And so I went to, to my postings in the region, you know, optimistic that finally the U.S. had turned the page, and that finally uh, the long decades of propping up autocrats in the service of various interests, although I construct this notion of what is interest in the book, is you know, the U.S. had turned the page and something new was going to happen. So that experience was very important, but then also seeing the full circle of the Obama years and seeing how that initial optimism, that initial bold policy response supporting the aspirations of the people and not the regimes by the end of the Obama administration had returned to the status quo uh, largely mm-hmm. and perhaps most poignantly in the U.S. response or lack thereof to the coup in Egypt in 2013, but really across the board, you know, whether it's Bahrain, whether it's Syria, it was clear that Obama had lost faith in the Arab Spring. So ironically, what we see under Trump is in some ways a continuation of what Obama started. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting the idea of like full circle, but I think a lot of critics of the Obama administration would say it wasn't just a retrenchment of the deep state in some situations, mm. you know, drastically in Egypt to a lesser extent in Tunisia, but more that things actually got a lot worse. And on the left, you have critics of 
maybe too aggressive policies in Libya, not emphasizing enough diplomacy in Syria, waffling on Egypt, that sort of thing, right? So isn't it not just that like things kind of like the quote unquote deep state came back, but things were like really worse in the Middle East when Obama mm. left office, right? And so to what extent would you say the administration bears some responsibility or is that is that even in the book? I point out in the book some key moments where I think the Obama administration, I call them critical moments for democracy promotion, where the Obama administration, I think, had a chance to apply uh, pressure on key actors in a number of countries where the U.S. arguably had some leverage. And so I focus in the book on three countries where I think the U.S. actually did have leverage, two of them longstanding autocratic allies of the U.S., Egypt and Bahrain, and then Libya, where the U.S. had a different kind of leverage owing to its role in the, yeah. uh, in the revolution. And there was key moments in both, in, sorry, not both, but all three of those countries where I think if it had used meaningfully applied tools like really you know, cutting off, uh, for instance, security assistance without strings attached, without giving the president this national security waiver, or if it had been more involved in the Libyan uh, transition, which you mentioned, but I think that, that there might have been some difference in what happened and what transpired in these countries. And in your own book, you write about the political isolation law in Libya in 2013, where the kind of fledgling Libyan parliament, under pressure from armed militias, voted to exclude anybody, you know, from like whether you were a university professor or a high-level official yeah. or like whatever, librarian, uh, who had been affiliated with the Qaddafi regime from public life. And that, based on my interviews with, with Libyans, you know, that more than perhaps anything else, you know, started this, was the catalyst for this process of polarization and exclusion that later led to, you know, the splitting of the country into two rival governments. And I think going back to the U.S. role, I think there was a moment where the U.S. could have cajoled, could have worked through the U.N., could have, no, but the U.S., this is, again, this is, this is where it intersects with my personal story because I was there and I know that we were so focused on counterterrorism by that point that we, speaking now as a former U.S. official, you know, we lost sight of any of these political processes that were happening. So we can't say for sure, but we never meaningfully tried. And yeah. I guess that's that's the answer. And I'm not sure if that was the answer you were looking for. I think you were maybe going down a slightly different path, so feel free to... I think both the criticisms on the right yeah. and the left of the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to think about key moments or missed opportunities in mm -hmm. a way. Libya, I think, is, as you mentioned, right, not paying attention mm -hmm. to maybe what was going on. The case of Egypt and Bahrain, do you want to say a little bit more about what you think those key moments were and what would a more constructive engagement have looked like? Sure. So I, I I should say also that the, you know the, the book does deal with the sort of you know the, some of the dilemmas of policymaking, which are often very nuanced, right? And so there's never a perfect answer. But on Bahrain, for instance, in the fall or of um, 2011, I believe November 2011, the Bahraini so-called Independent Commission of Inquiry, which is sometimes referred to as Biki, in short, re released a report. And this commission was in part created by U.S. involvement and pressure as a way to deal with, with some of the abuses that happened during the uprising and the subsequent crackdown in Bahrain in the spring of 2011. And it was a remarkable report for the Arab world and a remarkable report for a Gulf country, right? Of course, the Saudis hated this and it detailed some of the abuses that happened and even proposed, you know, that created like a, a kind of checklist of, of reforms that would have to be taken to improve the human rights situation. And so there, for instance, you know, the U.S. didn't even have to like come up with its own conditions because it had them in this document, right? And, but based on my interviews, never was this operationalized in the policy, never was this operationalized in a way that, that all high-level officials meeting with their Bahraini counterparts would sit down and say, listen, if you want us to restore the aid, the freeze on military assistance, then you have to meet these thresholds. And of course, the State Department and DOD, which is another part of the story, were in totally different places on this policy, right? So even if a State Department diplomat occasionally did try to get them to address some of these issues, then they would meet with a, you know, an official from the Department of Defense, from the, the Fifth Fleet, which is the naval installation there, or somebody from Central Command, and they would deliver a different message. So this was one recurring problem throughout the Obama administration, was mixed messaging coming from different parts of the U.S. government. And that's kind of you know, the insider story I want to tell in the book.
Egypt, I think, you know, the run-up to the 2013 coup. I mean, there's a response to the coup I already mentioned as an important moment, but the run-up to the coup, where you also had several different policies. And uh, I think it was the policy of Obama and some of his closest advisors to keep pushing for a democratic transition, and also to the extent that they had some inkling that, uh, you know, the military or CC or whoever were planning to carry out a coup to make sure that the Egyptian military understood that they can't do that, and they, if they did it, they would pay a price for it. But that was only one of the messages that was coming through. You had other officials, and I would say among them by this point, uh, John Kerry, who had become Secretary of State, and he was a very different character than Hillary Clinton in terms of his view of the region, in terms of his sort of instinctive distrust of, of the Muslim Brotherhood and political Islam in general. Um, not that Hillary Clinton was necessarily a, a flag-waving fan, but I think she was willing to work with such groups and saw the need to work with such groups. I think you had some officials from Department of Defense, among them characters that are now in the news for other reasons, like Michael Flynn, who was then the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, who was openly expressing you know, support for the military and, you know, kind of a disdain for Morsi, who was the democratically elected Islamist president of Egypt. Then. I'm not the only one who tells the story, by the way, because David Kirkpatrick of the New York Times um, kind of endorsed my book, excellent book on Egypt last year that tells the story too, but on the, on the Egypt front especially. So there's another example of, you know, such a moment where I think if the U.S. had spoken with one voice, clear voice, would the coup not have not happened? We can't ever be sure, but let's just say that we never meaningfully tried. Do you think, to what extent do foreign powers play upon these different institutions within the U.S. government have sort of different interests and, you know, broadly like, you know, defense and state aren't always working hand in hand. And sometimes I think about my own experience, you know, being brought in during the early phases of the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism mm-hmm. Partnership, and there was kind of debates between state and defense about, you know, who's going to get the funding and what's the funding going to go towards. Often, I think foreign powers know about these divisions and play upon them. I think Morocco has actually, in many ways, gone, you know, to the Defense Department when they weren't getting what they wanted yeah. out of state. Absolutely. And there's a long tradition in foreign policy analysis of documenting that. It's uh, the bureaucratic politics approach that was sort of pioneered by people like Graham Allison, Morton Halpern, and so on. So there's a you know, theoretical account of this too. And you know we can look at it throughout U.S. foreign policy history. But I think we saw it very, very dramatically after the Arab Spring, where especially in countries where there's a security partnership, so Egypt and Bahrain here become very relevant, but not only other Gulf countries who knew that at the end of the day, you know the Bahrainis know that the Navy is not going to give up that real estate, so to say. They're not going to give up that base easily, right? And so they know that to that extent that that base is guaranteed and they need force protection, they need all these things associated with the base, uh, support support from the Bahraini government, that any kind of conditions are, they're able to call the bluff, so to say, right? And so they absolutely exploit the differences in our interagency. But I would say the most dramatic exploitation comes not from the countries I just mentioned, but from the countries that spoiled the Arab Spring. And so here I'm talking about the Gulf countries. And so they both abroad and in Washington, and here I'm thinking about the Emiratis and Saudis especially. Sorry, this is a more complicated story, as you know, but the Emiratis and Saudis who, you know, from the beginning were threatened by what happened in 2011, we used every trick available to them, you know, to conquer and divide our, our interagency process, to colonize our interagency process, and to try to achieve an outcome that was favorable to their interests, which was not democracy. So to step back yeah, and take kind of a broader picture, in the book, how are you basically defining democracy promotion mm-hmm. and theorizing it? And you mentioned Eastern Europe, and I think I think you know recent years mm-hmm. have been cause for concern, and that's often you know in the '90s held up as an example of positive democracy promotion. But then we see that it's sort of easily rolled back. So it does raise questions about yeah, does it work? So you know, how do you define it, and ultimately, what's the track record look like? Right. So definition is something simple like the ways in which the U.S. encourages, compels another country either during a democratic transition or, you know, when authoritarianism falters, how it compels movement in a democratic direction in another country. But that's a little bit of an unruly, maybe awkward definition. A better way, I think, to define it 
maybe it's just to say it's the tools that are available to the U.S. government to achieve a democratic outcome. And there's a spectrum of tools, right? So on one end, you have soft power, which is just sort of by existing and being a model for the rest of the world. There's little evidence that it works. And I would say the U.S. for a lot of reasons, you know, uh, even predating Trump has lost some of that credibility, lost some of that soft power. And then if we move to the right in the spectrum to more activist measures, you have everything from multilateral diplomacy to, you know, work, direct kind of diplomatic engagement, you know, public naming and shaming and uh, engagement by high-level officials. And then, of course, one of the things that I think is very important that actually has been proven to work is various forms of conditionality, right? Either positive or negative conditionality, real threats to remove some kind of assistance or credible promises of aid if you know, a particular regime uh, behaves in a more democratic way. But I also think that in order for democracy promotion to work, all these things have to work together and you have to have high-level engagement. I was just talking to a Tunisian tonight who reminded me how important it was for Tunisians, for instance, that John McCain, you know, kind of visited, you know, he's, he's of course a, a figure who can argue about his record in different ways, but I do think that at, you know, key moments he was committed, that Ukraine is another example, right, where he was committed to democratic transitions. And I think having a voice like that, even though he was legislative, not executive branch, is important. Having presidential attention, having, you know, all officials on the same page and speaking with one voice and having those talking points about democracy and human rights at the top, not just sort of like, well, thank you for your cooperation on counterterrorism. Thank you for all those weapons you bought from us. And by the way, as I'm on the way out, don't forget about, you know, those political prisoners. That doesn't work. And I think the last thing I want to mention as far as the tools, something that both of you will know very well is civil society support. And you're probably familiar with a work by Sarah Bush, who wrote about U.S. support for civil society in this region in particular, and found that much of it is what she calls tame. In other words, for years now, the U.S. has been supporting civil society organizations that, you know, in and of themselves, I'm sure they're doing good work, but they're not regime challenging, right? And it's related to, to their own interests, right? They have to show measurable results. They have to work in these countries. I'm thinking of like the Jordans of the world, right, or Tunisia before 2011. So I'm a little bit skeptical. While I don't think that, you know, supporting civil society is a, is a bad thing, I also think that there's lots of places in the world where even now under Trump, you know, the U.S. is pumping a lot of money into civil society support in, in contexts and in ways that doesn't really change the fundamental structure of the polity of the, of the regime. And so I think that that alone is not for me a high degree of democracy promotion. For there to be a high degree of democracy promotion, you have to have all these tools kind of working together, including high level attention uh, from the White House. So the question of can it work, what are the important data points? Yeah, I mean, so this is hard, right? To, to I mean, so people have done large end type of research. There was a famous article by Perez and, oh gosh, I can't remember the other authors uh, in world politics, I think in the early 2000s that actually looked at USAID democracy promotion over many decades, over many countries, and, and Freedom House scores was, you know, dependent variables, Freedom House scores, and found that there was some statistically significant shift in countries where there had been more, this was entirely operationalized by how much money had been pumped into democracy promotion projects. So that's not my more expensive qualitative definition of what democracy promotion is. But I think the only way to really do this kind of research is you have to go in and do really deep kind of dives on case studies. You mentioned, you know, the case of, you know, Eastern Europe, Balkans, and European Union expansion. You mentioned how some countries who were offered that incentive, right? This awesome incentive of joining the European Union if they became democracies, respected human rights, and a whole bunch, you know, whole thousands of pages of actually conditions, right? And of course, that those were really strong conditions because you had this prize, which is never going to be offered here in this region. But, you know, one of the arguments about why there's this backsliding or this illiberalism right now is precisely because they're already in the European Union. It's hard to get kicked out, right? So, so the pressure is gone. So I think, but another piece of that story was the EU and US were working in lockstep, which we don't see much of this part of the world either. 
even where the U.S. sort of steps up to the plate sometimes, often the Europeans don't, right, because they have other, other interests and so on. I think you had U.S. institutions unified around the project of European Union and NATO enlargement. So, you know, you didn't have these divides we see between the State Department and DOD. And importantly, you didn't have this illiberal third country influence. You know, so Russia was still at that point weak and uninterested. Now it's an illiberal force in the Balkans. You didn't have the spoilers. You didn't have the Saudis and the Emiratis or Qataris coming in and using all kinds of methods, you know, everything from bankrolling military coups to rolling across the causeway to Bahrain and just putting down a putting down an uprising. You didn't have that phenomenon, right? So you had it was like the right set of circumstances. And it's interesting to think about because and I remember maybe even talking about this with you before, when you think about a country like Albania, it wasn't necessarily better prepared than like a Tunisia to a democracy. In many ways we could argue that it was worse prepared. I mean geographically it's in Europe, right? But the but the external conditions were more favorable. Let me just give you a couple of other examples in terms of, you know, those those critical moments where I think the US can make a difference. I would say that if you look at uh, South Korea in the late 1980s, Philippines, you know, places where the U.S. had for a long time propped up dictators that were on our side of the Cold War. And I think Reagan was eventually convinced by George Shultz and other people around him. I don't think he really wanted to drop support for Marcos, for instance, but, you know, he was convinced. And I think, you know, the U.S. stepped in at the right moment in places where, you know, its support mattered a great deal. It, it didn't make it a difference. We can point to Burma, you know, although that's also been turned around now. But yeah, so these, you know, this is this imperfect kind of things. But, but I, I guess, the, you know, the larger point is this. I'm not a purist, and I don't believe that the U.S. should, can promote democracy around the world. You know, I'm not a neocon, I'm not, nor am I on the far left, nor am I, you know, like kind of a Samantha Power level interventionist. But twice now, we've decided after 9-11 that maybe propping up, you know, illegitimate autocratic governments in the Arab world is not in our interest, right? I mean, in fact, in fact, there's deep contention even now in Washington, and it goes across the political aisle. There's deep contention of what are U.S. interests in a place like Egypt, right? Is it in our interest to have this kind of relationship? Michael Wahid Hanna has written brilliantly about, like, from a realist perspective, why don't we just, like, minimize it? Why don't we do overflight and, and you know, Suez Canal, and that's it. If they want to break up with Israel, let them go. If they, you know, I mean, are we getting really anything out of them? You know, like, what, what is the cost we're paying for this, right? And then you have that on the libertarian side, and then you have that on the human rights left side. It's really, there's this convergence around, same thing with Bahrain, right? Is it worth having a fifth fleet there? So, so part of this book is sort of, you know, deconstructing, like, what is, because it's always like interest versus values, but what is U.S. interest? Whose interests are we talking about, right? And who's constructing these interests? So there's a whole bunch of ways we can talk about that piece of it. So I, I do think that twice after 9-11, we've, we've said that it's not in our interest to prop up these governments. And on top of that, maybe, you know, there's something about repressive governments that also foster extremism, right? And that's not so that, you know, we can argue debate that as a separate thing. And twice, two presidents, both Bush and Obama, have made, you know, sweeping statements and actually implemented some programs that look like we were going to turn the page. And then we went back. And so I think that's something worth explaining. Uh, it's, it's not about being dyed in the wool, warm-hearted. And the book seems to work in a kind of international relations kind of context. Do you see it as speaking to debates between realists, liberals, and constructivists? Or are something else going on? Maybe a little bit. I mean, you know, I think there's a built-in, it's a very policy-oriented book. I think there's a built-in challenge to realism or, or a built-in uh, challenge to the notion that democracy promotion occurs where there's no interest because I'm saying, well, how do we, can't assume interest, right? Um, there's a challenge to realism in terms of sort of unpacking the U.S. state, you know, not looking at the U.S. as a, as a unitary actor. There's this bureaucratic politics bit. But there's also a large section on individuals. And I write about people like Ann Patterson, who was our ambassador in Egypt, and who I interviewed also for the book. I write about Obama himself, you know, and then sort of his, there's, I think there's dual impulses there. Here's Obama, the, the community organizer, former community organizer who believes in change from below. But here's Obama also, that kind of more pragmatic, kind of hard-nosed realist who never really believed that democracy could happen here anyway. Here's Obama who called the conflict in Syria, you know, ancient ethnic hatreds, much like people talked about the Balkans in the 1990s. I don't think he ever really believed, and I think that came through. So we have to understand Obama as an individual, and it's very clear that 
he made the call on a lot of these things. Yes, he was pressured by key people. I write about Samantha Power. I write about Ben Rhodes. I write about Susan Rice. There was Mike McFall, right? There was cute. This is in the way I challenged the international relations because international relations people don't pay attention to the role of the individual in policymaking. I think that's extremely important. And then finally, there's the piece about the, um, about the third party powers, you know, the spoilers of democratization. And I don't know where that fits into IR theory. So maybe it's a little bit of foreign policy analysis, a little of IR, and a little bit of kind of journalistic <laughs> policy work too. Yeah. There's a kind of infamous book review by Robert Vitalis, a book about Saudi Arabia, in which he sort of accuses the author of working too much at a kind of ambiguous middle meso level of interest groups and coalitions to try to explain like Saudi politics. And he, he says, you know, we used to think of politics as, you know, key moments, key decisions, mm-hmm. personalities, you know, backed up by documentary evidence or otherwise, right? That was politics and that's what political science was or something. And, and, and that's been lost in some ways. So we would agree that we, we should try to recover some of that, right? And trying to understand these things that we do actually kind of need to get into the nitty gritty of policymaking. Absolutely. And I, I happen to write about U.S. foreign policy, but I think we could do that like you suggested, like this author did for Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. I think if we really want to understand how these things work, of course, we want to be guided and by theory and we, we can, you know, theory is still illuminating and we want to engage what's been written. But I think there's room uh, also to get inside some of these processes and to understand, to write about people, right, and their backgrounds and their worldviews, to write about institutions and how they operate. Same thing when we think about, you know, the processes happening here, you know, post-Arab Spring in Tunisia Larissa and I talked about this when, when she was in to give us a, a talk the other day about what about the reform of the interior ministry? What is that going to take, right? And I mean, is that, that's an important piece of this. You even, even after having a minister at the head of the interior ministry that at one point was tortured in the building that he was then running, he would have the most incentive of all to reform it, but he was unable to, right? So looking at these issues of what you call deep statehood and, and what does it take to get institutional reform I mean, requires, I think, a, an approach that certainly goes beyond uh, kind of large-end research, but also, I think, is willing to look at these things with, without approaching it with, with any kind of ideological, epistemological prejudices, whether that comes from critical theory or that comes from neoliberalism or whatever, right? You, I think you just have to get inside and, and describe how these processes work. Shifting gears a little bit, I wonder if, if critics of the book, I think there's a reaction I critique. I, I do think the U.S. record is, is very kind of mixed. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for every backing a popular movement or things like that, you also have your Mossadegh's and your Guatemala's and your, your Granada's Absolutely. and things like that. Absolutely. So how do you square this history where it's, you know, it's easier for people to say, oh, it was in the U.S. interest to, to do X, Y, and Z. So we support democracy when it's interesting. We support authoritarianism when it's in our interest, right? But I think the picture is like a little bit more complicated. But do you see these things as being inherently intention, democracy promotion and interest? I mean, you were just sort of saying that there's this constant sort of effort. To be well, like, I don't know. What I mean, our... it, it was both sides of the political aisle, including, you know, realists, hardcore realists like Colin Powell, you know, who were so moved by the UN Arab Human Development Report of 2002 and, and its description of the sad state of, of human development, right, on every, in this part of the world and they said hey, wait a second you know these regimes aren't delivering for their people right and so well, yes called, they called they, for a genocide right so i think yeah at a certain point mixing you know the the war on terror with democracy promotion was a huge mistake for a lot of reasons that would be you know take another book but at the same time i think that there was this recognition that went beyond just well repression breeds extremism this sense that there was something fundamentally wrong here and by the way you know hillary clinton gave her now famous speech in doha just on the eve of the Arab uprising, saying, you know, the region's foundations are sinking in the sand. The President Obama had commissioned a, a study on this regime stability and what the U.S. would do about it just in the months preceding that Samantha Power led at the White House. I think there was some sense 
that this was unsustainable. And I don't know if you want to call that, that the U.S. should rethink its policy, right? So I don't know if that, you know, it's a false dichotomy. I just, you know, I'm not interested in like engaging in these kind of ideologically driven debates about what the U.S. record, you're absolutely right, it's mixed. And probably if we were to count it up, (laughs) probably it would be more on the side of maybe propping up autocrats. And yet, you know, the U.S. is the only power that has both at least some commitment to these values, if you want to call them, and also has the tools and the power to be able to do it. And, you know, of course, the examples we talk about all is Germany and Japan after World War II, which were special in many cases. But so what, are you, what is the U.S. supposed to do, right? Is it should it just sit back and to pretend that the U.S., you know, there's some voices that were saying, well, this is not about the U.S., the Arab Spring is about the Arabs, and this is just going to mess things up and can't do it. Well, it's funny that well, first of all, I think that you can't separate the U.S. from places like Egypt because it's I mean, it's $1.3 billion a year. It's like so intertwined, right? I mean, the relationship from everything from all the top Egyptian military brass or even not the top goes to study in the United States. I mean, this is a complicated relationship that has existed over many decades. So to pretend that the U.S. is not already woven into the you know, DNA of Egypt is of course, silly, but then also to pretend that to say that the U.S. would have no role is sort of funny because some of the people who were saying it were the people who for years had supported this policy of propping up the autocrats, right? Mm-hmm. To suddenly say, okay, now we, you know, we can't do anything. So the argument I heard from a lot of Obama administration officials that we had no leverage, we couldn't do anything or we shouldn't have done anything is also disingenuous because how can they know that if they never really meaningfully tried? Do you think in retrospect, all of the talk of, and again, some of this predated the Arab Spring, but the Asia pivot was naive to think that the United States for so many decades being involved so intensively in the Middle East could so easily just extricate itself and say, you know, I think this is part of where some of the problems arise is the, you know, you talk about the UAE and Saudi Arabia, but in a way, I think the Obama administration deputized local powers to do work that the Bush administration had assumed that it would do itself, right? And that the Asia pivot was, I don't know if it was naive, obviously, I think for some people it makes strategic sense or something, but it seemed to me, what are they thinking that after so Obama did push back, especially at the Gulf-U.S. summit of, I think it was May 2015, after the Emirates had engaged in some sort of just audacious you know, activity in, in Libya, you know, bombing, which I think you also cover in your book, bombing the Stratton positions or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, against UN Security Council resolutions and against U.S. wishes. I think there was a pushback at certain points. So I, I don't know if I'd agree. I mean, I think that the U.S. certainly deputized the Saudis in Yemen, you know, and that's very clear. And maybe at other moments, I, I think mostly, you know, it was this weird policy where, where the Obama administration would, you know, beseech the Gulf powers not to do something and they would do it anyway and then they paid no price. I mean, I think that's a better way to describe it with some of their policies in Libya or Egypt and maybe some other places too. Bahrain, I guess, would be another example. So it is true that, you know, it's a funny thing you learn in the U.S. government that because, you know, big kind of policy shifts have to be White House driven, if the president's attention is diverted somehow, you know, whether it's a domestic, you know, scandal or if it's other things, then they probably can't do a very good job making policy innovations. And so the U.S. government sometimes can't walk and chew gum at the same time as they say, you you know, there has to be some focus. And I think, that, yeah, Obama wanted to get out of the Middle East. So does Trump, ironically, right? They share that. And I think that both are responding to, this is where it gets tricky, they're responding to a democratic mandate. I think the U.S. public opinion is divided over many things, including foreign policy, like, you know, Republicans tend to think Putin is a good guy now or whatever, crazy things like that. Or they're divided over how much money to put into the military. But public opinion in the U.S. is absolutely united on the U.S. getting, ending these military. Here I'm thinking more about Syria and Afghanistan, right? But in general, ending, you know, kind of entanglements in the Middle East, right? Because they see it as costly and unwinnable. And so I think Obama was responding to that. And so this is sort of a question of the foreign policy elites or what Ben Rhodes calls the blob, understand that public opinion may not understand all the strategic implications of of sort of, you know, washing your hands of the Middle East where you've been involved for all this time and what that may cause. But yet, you know, we are a democracy, right? So it's a tricky thing. But I do think that Obama on Syria in particular, and I've heard this from lots of people, former counterparts and other diplomatic services to friends in the U.S. and around the world who follow this stuff, that 
you know, hysteria policy, let's just say that you even agree with the fact that, you know, Congress wasn't going to approve more action. So he was being realistic and constitutionally sound about that. But the effect of that policy was devastating in many ways, empowering Russia, not only in its actions in Syria, but also in Crimea and other places. This sometimes with the red line, you know, stuff, but also saying that Assad must go and not operationalizing that in any meaningful way to increase Saudi belligerence, I mean, across the board, right? There was sort of a vacuum. But then the question is, like, when it comes to things like Syria, so is the U.S. going to be in Syria permanently? So these are fair questions to ask. Of course, I don't agree with the way Trump did it, but I think that the impulse was much like Obama, and I think there's, there's broad support for it. I'm just wondering, to a certain extent, after Vietnam, the U.S. had to kind of rethink, or at least, you know, the Kissinger mm-hmm. Ford period. There was a kind of rethink of, well, how do we create a world in which we're able to have some kind of influence, but we now understand that direct mm. military intervention isn't a good thing, which was sort of the governing experience, I think, of American foreign policy, especially if you look at like Beirut's, Reagan's experience there, a very quick but tepid intervention in, in Libya under Reagan, but then the Gulf War sort of changes things a bit. But, but during that period, there was an understanding that, you know, the U.S. was going to have to outsource that there were limits to American hegemony and that the U.S. was going to have to outsource to a certain extent. And so when Iran falls to a revolution, then we look at Saudi Arabia not just as an energy partner, but as a strategic partner and things of that sort, and Israel and things of that sort. And it seemed to kind of work in terms of creating, if you want to say, a sense of stability, but even though you have the Iran-Iraq war, and that's the mechanisms of stability and things of that sort. And and so it seems to have worked for a period, but then under Obama, the, this outsourcing. So George W. tries to change the rules of the game and says, no, we're going back to full-scale intervention. But when you say we outsourced during those earlier periods, who did we outsource to? Or who did the U.S. outsource to? Who Israel, the interest mm-hmm. in Israel, especially increases mm-hmm. after the 70s three war mm-hmm. after Iran the revolution the there we, we look okay. at the Saudis right to be our um, the, the container of Iran right. the, the aid to right. Iraq to a certain extent to fight yeah. Iran and the Iran-Iraq war Morocco especially but, like but remember Iran. up to the first Gulf War we did that which, which I think is the point you're making, we did it with very minimal military presence. We used something called yeah. offshore balancing, right? We just had yeah. big troop numbers only started later. And even Iraq, 1991, the first Gulf War, as you called it, was a self-limiting intervention because famously George H.W. Bush encouraged the, both the Shia and the Kurds to rise up. And eventually, you know, we, we helped the Kurds, but the Shia we left to their own devices, right? That's something that southern, southern Iraqis remember very well. So even then, there was this recognition that we can't deal with Iraq. We overthrow Saddam. So George W. Bush, I guess, was a real... But I'm sorry if I didn't... Because uh, I think you were getting to a question. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's a bit difficult because I think it's hard to say that, you know, mm-hmm. offshore balancing yeah. worked, you know, in the 70s and 80s when, in fact, there was a lot of, like, instability. Right. Lebanon, things of that sort. But I think one final question. Again, we don't, we don't have a lot of data, but so far we've seen the Trump administration, which is a reaction in many ways to the Obama administration, yeah. but you did say that there was also a sense of, of retreat, and we see this in Afghanistan, Syria, and upon coming to office, right? Yeah. You know, he said, I'm not going to do anything mm-hmm. about Libya. Yeah, he said that famously... Jonathan Weiner is out. So Libya is a very dramatic example of the Obama administration's uh, retreat from not only democracy promotion, but, you know, any kind of meaningful engagement. Of course, that was driven by the tragedy of Benghazi and the politics of Benghazi more than the tragedy, actually. But it was also driven by a kind of a sense... On the part of Obama, you know, this same, you know, the way that Iraq drove his... And remember, he wasn't a big fan of going into Libya in the first place, right? He called it a 5149 decision. And so in that case, you know, some of his... In that sense, some of his key advisors may played a big role. So Trump's statement to the Italian prime minister early on in his presidency that I don't care about Libya, 
maybe even said beyond counterterrorism. You know, I mean, he has followed up on that, and we don't even have an ambassador now. It's, there's this really strange situation where the former ambassador is back as a charge d'affaires, but he's not accredited as an ambassador. And you know, weirdly in the diplomatic world, that matters a great deal to have. Like, a mission is really small; it's being run from here, from Tunis. Uh, it's difficult to see Libyans or mention you know, see conditions on the ground in Libya. It's very dominated by AFRICOM and their you know counterterrorism agenda for Libya. So democracy promotion or human rights promotion is you know, that began its decline under, under Obama's is almost is almost gone. There's few programs, you know, support civil society and so on, a few exchange programs, kind of public diplomacy programs. But the U.S. is not interested in playing a bigger role. And, and of course, counterterrorism is something that frames the book also. You can't, you can't ignore that, right? That being the preoccupation in so many places. And although, you know, in an ideal world, those, those that's supposed to somehow go together with democracy promotion. Often those things are in tension, as you suggested earlier, because it necessitates cooperation with governments, right, to carry out certain kinds of operations. And I think even, you know, the U.S. push in 2015 for the Skherat agreements, you know, maybe some of the hastiness around that and that push was driven also by the need of, of the Department of Defense uh, and AFRICOM to have that legitimate government partner mm-hmm. to work with. And that's been, you know, the story of post-9-11 U.S. foreign policy. So it's really sad for me to see Libya, a place that I went to live in not so long after the overthrow of Qaddafi, where there was really, really genuine hope and optimism that something better was going to happen, you know, to a situation now where you have uh, human rights abuses galore, probably worse, not probably, but almost certainly worse than they were under Qaddafi. And now, of course, driven by various militias, not the state itself, and of course, the division of the country and then all the dysfunction that comes with that. So that's so branding point. I really think, though, that, that the Trump, in the last, last point before maybe we can wrap it up, the Trump administration, I think, could if it had the will, deal with both the conflicts in Libya and Yemen in a way that might make a difference. I think it actually, the U.S. could have the leverage to do that. I don't think he will do it. But I think this is where, where the U.S. could make a difference. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.